This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Great to have you here today. Shortly you are off to Carnarvon where the mango harvest is underway. And by the sounds of it, if you can find a Carnarvon mango, it is worth buying one. There's been a bit of a smaller size profile this year on fruit, but eating quality, it's been brilliant. So, yeah, they're all eating really well. There's some, you know, some of the tree ripe stuff down here, you know, you can smell it from a mile away. It tastes amazing. So, you know, I mean, it's not hard to get a really nice tasting mango, but... You know, in Carnarvon, they do grow some of the sweetest ones that I reckon you can get. And a mineral sand miner in the Kimberley has had clearing activities partially suspended after the discovery of a direction stone. You can't remove something that was put there from our ancestors. So the direction stones that are there, when our old people used to move seasonal, then they used to put direction stones. So it leads them to a, um, a campsite, it leads them to a waterhole. So that's why it's it, it, it's there for a reason. Six past twelve here on the country on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. The Federal National Party is stepping up calls for an ACCC inquiry into the prices being charged for food at the big supermarkets. Nationals leader David Littleproud says a Senate inquiry into whether the supermarket giants are price gouging won't go far enough and it's going to take too long. And he says the competition watchdog is best suited for this particular job. He says the inquiry should have started months ago. As far back as October that we needed a price investigation by the ACCC. They got very granular at particular commodities. And we could see that particularly with beef and lamb prices that dropped about 60 to 70% in June, yet the price of the checkout only dropped at around 8%. And then when you see what they're doing to the horticulture industry, uh, where we're seeing them paying about $1.50 for melons, but charging $5.30 at the checkout, or even zucchinis, they're giving $2.20 to the farmer, but charging $6.50 at the checkout. There's a big disparity where we believe that the supermarkets are gouging and they're gouging because between the two big Australian and the big German supermarket, they have 74% of the market. So they control it. They use fear and intimidation on many of the suppliers, but then they're, they're playing with the prices at the checkout. We're all paying more. So we've said the government and unfortunately missed an opportunity back in October because if they hadn't got that going, in fact, the ACCC would have been able to give uh, a report and, and given direction even before Christmas. We could have seen some pressure taken off families for Christmas. The government said, no, we're going to do a grocery code review, which is not going to look at meat prices or fruit and veggie. It's more about the architecture. And then when they realised it was getting serious, they announced this Senate inquiry that won't start till February. The cost of the Well, I, just on that, David Littlepad, I don't want to quibble over the wording too much, but it is accepting submissions already. They close on the 2nd of February. So you could argue it is indeed underway already. But the problem is, is that it's it actually, firstly, you've missed the, the window before Christmas that the ACCC would have had the power to compel and actually have people in front of them well before Christmas. And secondly, they now have to wait for the Senate to come back, for that committee to, to recommit. And we don't go back to Canberra until February. So no action will be taken. So the cost of living crisis is in a couple of months' time. 
it actually it's been going on for the last 19 months uh, and when you see that there are supermarkets taking advantage of that then and there was evidence of that you would have got the professionals to do it that's the other point that we want to make about this i'm not against the senate inquiry but why wouldn't you have got the professionals who have the tools who have the expertise to actually be able forensically look at the market conduct of the supermarkets rather than a bunch of politicians asking questions. Uh, David Littleproud, uh, just on, on that point um, in terms of how much profit the major supermarkets are making, I just wanted to play devil's advocate for a moment. Coles, for example, made a billion dollars in profit last financial year. That was off revenues of $41 billion. So they would argue that for every $100 we spend, they're only making $2.50 in profit. And I presume no one wants the supermarkets to go bust, do they? They do have to make a profit. No, exactly. I'm not, as I said, I'm not against them making a profit. It's just how they conduct themselves in making that profit. And, and what they've done, particularly with the horticulture industry, is they've actually get producers because they are the market. This isn't a bigger market. This, they own 74% of the market, so they control it. And what they've done, and we've seen this even in my electorate, where they've got horticultural producers to buy more land, give them a contract, but then walk away from the pricing within that contract, leaving farmers to only uh, to, to actually lose money and have to sell up and move out. So their conduct has been uncomfortable because they control the market. Their response to all this is, we're just paying the market value. The market value is what they determine, not what the pure market decides. And that's what we're saying. I want them to make money, but it has to be reasonable. And what we're saying is there should be transparency in that pricing around cost of production and around what that translates of their markup. When you well, well, that's, when sorry to interrupt the there, David Littleproud, but isn't transparency exactly what you're going to get with the government's uh, changes, the supermarket code of conduct, which they're reviewing right now to increase transparency? Well, no, there's some, uh, there's some actual uh, recommendations from a perishable goods inquiry the ACCC did before the election. In fact, that we actually put in place that gave greater transparency, but all this will do about greater architecture around the, chart, the penalties that they should pay rather than getting to the granularity of, of some of these issues. And so that's, that's the difference about what the government's announced and what should happen. Right. So we're not, against the, we're, not against the, we're not against any of those reviews that they're doing, but we're just saying that when there are blatant, blatant uh, commodity issues like uh, meat and fresh fruit that have been seen where they've exploited current circumstances, we as legislators should be more agile to be able to get in there and to make sure that we're holding them to account. But you can't tell me, that, and I used to pick watermelons in Chinchilla in Western Queensland. It, you, you basically pick them out of the paddock, you put them in a bin and they're on the back of a truck and they go to the supermarket. You can't tell me that the markup from $1.50 that they're paying the farmer to $5.30, $5.40 they're charging you at the checkout um, is all costs um, in that transportation. That's nonsense. Uh, and that's, uh, you, can't, you can't actually really justify that. And that's what we're saying. Well, is, 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 that, is, that, is that happening in Western Australia? Because I know you've spoken to, to growers uh, on the East Coast. You've cited a couple of those over the last 24 hours. But are you hearing this from any WA producers in particular? Well, in fact, I was in Carnarvon about 12 months ago and uh, farmers not only were struggling with the lack of labour because the ag visa was taken off them by the government, but the dealings they have with the supermarkets. And that's not just in horticulture, that's also in dairy. Uh, down further south in in uh, in forest area, so uh, WA actually has even more acute issue uh, because uh, not only do they have them uh, the producers over there on the hook, but you're then also uh, in some ways bound by what happens on the east coast. So it can sometimes be even more acute for Western Australians than it is for the east coast 
population. And that's why we just need to make sure uh, that everybody gets fairness. And I'm not saying I want to regulate prices. I'm just saying there needs to be transparency about what the cost of production is, what the markup can reasonably be, particularly on a commodity that underpins all life. We all need to eat. And that's why I'm not against them making profits. It's how they're making those profits that we need to make sure that there's regulatory guide rails, particularly when they control 74% of the market. But if there so is, they, they if there, and sorry to interrupt again, David Littlepad, but if there is that transparency and people can see there's a markup they're not happy with, I mean, that doesn't change the market share they have. So, I mean, what are farmers supposed to do if they, they don't really have other options to sell their produce? How, if, do, if, you, if you aren't doing price setting what, you know, or price controls, what can you change? No, well, this is this is the issue that's coming through as well. Is what we're seeing is some farmers um, who aren't big enough are, are basically walking away. The bigger ones are now saying, well, it's it's actually easy to take advantage of the, of the free trade agreements and send our produce overseas because we now have a more reliable supplier uh, a supply contract uh, with prices that that are more reasonable to our cost of production. Uh, and this is where we're just saying that we need to use some common sense on this. We, we can't throw all the market principles out, but when a government should only interfere in a marketplace when there's a market imbalance. Right, but that's what I'm trying to get at, sorry, is just if transparency isn't going to do the trick, like what what actually is going to force change? Well, there is a suite of measures, and that's the thing. There's no silver bullet to this. Firstly, there's transparency about consumers understanding what cost of production is. Secondly, there's about the need for greater competition in the marketplace than just Coles and Woolworths and the big German. It's about getting more competition in creating a regulatory environment for that to happen. But when the, when the market uh, is being distorted by the power of, of, of companies that control most of it, there needs to be guide rails, guide rails that legislators can put in place. And that is about us coming together as a parliament and saying, if, if the supermarkets abuse the power that they have, not only to suppliers, but to consumers, then we should have some punitive penalties. At the moment, the greatest penalty under the Grocery Code of Conduct is $64,000. I mean, they would pay that out of the till from one of the Perth stores, I would suspect. Why it should be a minimum of 10 million scaling up. We could have divestiture powers that would say to them, if you abuse suppliers or consumers uh, in an egregious way, we could have divestiture powers that see one of the, that see their chain of Dan Murphy's be sold, forced to be sold from them. They'll make sure that there is greater transparency, that we're all playing by the rules. Um, we want them to be successful, but we also need to make sure that when they're dealing in the commodity that underpins life, that there is a reasonableness around this and that everybody can see um, that we are getting a fair go from the farm gate to your plate. Nationals leader David Little proud with Damien Smith. Quarter past 12 on the country hour. And WA Farmers President John Hassel says if you think you're being ripped off in the big supermarkets, then why don't you do something about it? He says he doesn't think there'll be any changes in the supermarket until shoppers take matters into their own hands and start shopping around. Probably not until the, until the supermarkets are, you know, I guess brought under control by the consumers, really. There's, there's two, two kind of aspects. I think they are exercising undue market control because there's you know two majors and most people turn their turn turn right into the major supermarkets instead of shopping around and that is detrimental to themselves um but also uh, i think they've got too much control uh in terms of they are more or less a duopoly and you know if you study economics you know that they can charge what they like and i think that is a bit rotten and i think the way they treat farmers it's called the, the walmart effect in the us because walmart has such huge market power 
it, it puts small businesses out of business and, uh, and directs all of the business to Walmart. And they also uh, treat the, the, their suppliers very poorly. And I think we're heading down that path and I don't like it. Uh, John, you said the power is with us, the consumer. I mean, if we boycott uh, or go to the supermarkets and boycott certain products, that doesn't help the farmers either really, does it? Well, no, but you can shop around. So, for instance, there's a, a business down in Gosnells that uh, that sells you know half sheep for seven dollars fifty a kilo, whereas if you go into the supermarkets, you're paying you know double that at the very minimum for the for the cheapest cuts and uh, all the way up to forty dollars for a set for a, uh, lamb chops. So you can shop around and should shop around, and uh, I think that will do yourself a big favour. I know that's a bit inconvenient, but it's a lot of money. The, the big trick is going to be to, to shop around for starters, to do yourself a favour, but also I think that there needs to be some sort of uh, uh, inquiry into their huge market power. So are you supportive of an ACCC inquiry into inflated supermarket prices and what do you think it might uh, mean for us if it does happen? Well, you know, anybody who has too much market power in this country has laws to protect them or to protect the consumers from that too much market power. And I think our supermarkets actually do have too much market power and I think they they uh, you know they lure you in the door with cheap price on one thing and once you're in the door you do your whole shopping so it's it's definitely got to be a combination of the two I think we definitely need an inquiry into their behaviors but I also think that we need to we need to get people to to look after themselves as well by by doing that little bit of shopping around okay so you're representing the farmers what are you hearing from them that we are not hearing well, I think the big one for us is lamb. That we, you know, there are sheep being sold as little as a dollar in the sale yards, and then you hear the pricing of forty dollars. So it was a long time before any price drop came from either of the supermarkets. And I think uh, the uh, Woolworths actually started that, uh, bringing the price down. But it was a long time between the time that the price of lamb fell in the sale yards to the time that they were bringing that price down in the supermarkets. And certainly the farmers, you know, getting a dollar a sheep for their head, a dollar a head for their sheep is, is pretty painful. And I think if the supermarkets passed it on a bit sooner, and of course there are other issues there like the live trade, but if the supermarkets passed that on a bit sooner, that might have helped increase demand for our product as well. WA Farmers President John Hassel with Christian Horgan, 19 past 12. Jeremy is a producer from Carnarvon and called through on the talkback line earlier today. He says he doesn't get a fair deal from the major supermarkets. The majors hold a, uh, really hold a monopoly in the markets because in the old days when I worked at um, Canningvale, or before Canningvale, the West Perth markets, when I was 17-year-old and I'm 65 now, back in those days there were hundreds and hundreds of little shop owners coming in every morning and competing for the produce that was on the floors. Now there is a handful of those people still surviving in the game and the buyers for the three, you know, the um, Coles, Woolies and, and Aldi. Uh, so how, how can that possibly be a fair situation? What do you grow, sorry, Jeremy? We grow a range of things. We have grown melons. This year we did butternut pumpkins, uh, rock melons, chilies, paprikas and a whole pile of other little things. Yeah. Yeah. And are you dealing with the major supermarkets directly or is there a, a middle party, so to speak? No, you don't deal with them Directly, you'll go through uh, a, repa- a repackager, so uh, someone like an Odium Farms or, or a company like that, who will buy up from a range of farms across the state, 
take it down to Perth, get it down to Perth, repackage it, and then present it to Coles okay. and Woolies. Because that would add a, an, an extra sort of bit to the cost, I, I imagine. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, because they've got to, they've got to make a profit out of this as well, and I really think that the solution is pretty simple. David's sort of on the money with setting sort of a, a, a cost of production price for for stuff, but really at the end of the day, what we need is more competition to come back into the system, and the only way to do that is to break up the monopoly, is to stop Coles and Woolies doing meat and veg and milk and just get them out of the system and get all the little shops that used to be running and providing fruit, veg, meat to to be the ones doing it again. So there's competition. They will still make they'll still make a decent dollar uh, and then the growers will get paid for or the producers will get paid for uh, what they're producing properly. I'll give you an example with for example, beans. We grow beans every year and we have done since about 2012. We're still getting the same price every year for beans that we were getting back in 2012. Our costs of production have skyrocketed. You know, we're paying the same as everyone else for fuel. We're also paying more now for for transport, packaging, chemicals, fertiliser, you name it. All our prices, all our costs have skyrocketed, but the prices that we're getting at market uh, have flatlined. Talkback caller Jeremy from Carnarvon with Damien Smith earlier today. Jeremy thinks the solution to all this, the concerns about food prices at the big supermarkets, is to stop Coles, Woolworths and Aldi selling meat fruit, vegetables and milk and get some more competition in the game. So I wonder if you think Jeremy's onto something. Let me know, 0448 922 604. What do you think might get to the bottom of this situation with the prices in the supermarkets and claims about price gouging? Earlier, John Hassel from WA Farmers says it's up to you. You need to start shopping around uh, and that's going to make a difference. Um, Jeremy saying stop them selling those things like the meat, vegetables and milk. Let me know your thoughts. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Peter has text through saying that there's a full acre of watermelons getting ploughed into the ground due to no pickers and also mangoes just dropping on the ground. Absolute shame. A friend sent some down to him from Carnarvon. So he's got a watermelon sitting there in the fridge. Thank you for letting me see that photo, Peter. Appreciate it. The text is 0448 922 604, 23 past 12. Nationals leader David Proud, as you heard earlier, says the starting point has to be an inquiry by the competition watchdog, the ACCC. Well, Mick Keogh, the Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, was here on the Country Hour last month. And I asked him then if he was keen for the ACCC to jump in and take a look at these claims of price gouging at the supermarkets. It's really up to the Treasurer to uh, provide us with a direction. There's a provision under our legislation, uh, Section 95, which gives us compulsory information gathering powers. And certainly we've conducted previous inquiries for example, into the dairy sector and into the Murray-Darling Basin water markets using those powers. And uh, they can provide a very robust and sound uh, report because it's based on facts. It's based on actual information 
um, sales information, uh, costs information, all that sort of stuff that we can get firsthand from participants in the industry. So certainly um, the powers that are available to us under that section uh, after a direction from the treasurer are very useful in these sort of situations. Is but, an inquiry uh, needed? Uh, look, that's really a, a, a decision for policymakers. That's not something that um, the regulator uh, expresses an opinion on. If we're required to do so, we will undertake one. But uh, as I said, it's really up to policymakers to make those decisions. Mick Keogh, the Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. 25 past 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. And shortly an update from the newsroom. We'll get the headlines for you and then checking the weather conditions right across Western Australia. And, of course, today is the first of the livestock sales getting back underway for the new year. So heading off to Mushay for the results of the cattle market just before the news at 1 o'clock. First, though, the mango harvest is gradually making its way south with the fruit now being picked in Carnarvon. The story in Carnarvon is much the same as it has been in Kununurra and Darwin, with volumes down significantly on previous years. Grower Eddie Smith says there is an upside to the story, with the prices he's getting the highest he's ever seen. And he says it's great to get those good prices, but it's not easy to see so much of your fruit die in the heat. In December we got, early December we got a four day period of over, uh, up around the 42, 43 degrees and on two of those days, five o'clock in the afternoon, it was still 42 degrees out here, we lost a significant amount of fruit, a significant amount but um, I estimated at the time we probably lost close to 50% and I'm, st- I'm saying we probably have, yeah. Well, going on what we've, we've picked to date when we're well into the, into the harvest so yeah, I'm, I'm thinking we're still, I'm still saying probably around 50%. Eddie takes me through his rows of mango trees, pointing out the mangoes with burnt skin. It's around half his crop, but all in all, he says the market's performing well. It hurts a bit, but having said that, the, our quality of what we are picking is very, very good. We're getting close to 75 to 80% grade ones, which is great, which is to see an improvement in the value. And unfortunately, the weather events in Queensland might have had an impact on the market as well. Our returns have been... We've, we've had very little at the moment. We've only had one set of returns. But that's been very good. Yeah, it's a bit of the highest we've seen. The highest we've seen on our returns ever. So, yeah, the average return on grade ones, on that one return we've had to date, was well over the $40 mark. Eddie says the different varieties of mangoes are performing well. KP's performed extremely well for us. We didn't have enough, we, <laughs> disappointingly. And the larger counts in the KP's performed extremely well. Uh, the R2E2's, I don't know yet. Our guy in the markets is talking reasonably uh, better prices than we normally see, so that's, that's pretty positive. And then the other grades, it's too early to tell. Not the other varieties, sorry, not the grades, the other varieties. Because it's an early season, Eddie expects there may only be a couple of weeks left. For us, we've probably got another two or three weeks, maybe a little bit longer. We started earlier than expected. 
22nd, 23rd of December. And I wasn't expecting, on the timing when, when the trees flowered and the fruit set started, I was expecting to start now, not you know, prior to Christmas. Yeah, and that was with its own problems, having people knocking off for four days for Christmas and no freight. And, but we had fruit ready to go and we had to get it off. So Adrian Farchic is a sales manager at the produce distributor Mercer Mooney and he says the early season has in some ways been beneficial for Carnarvon growers. Some of the stuff that was ready before Christmas, so the season started a bit earlier than usual, like things were a bit more advanced. So early fruit, especially pre-Christmas, because there was a bit of a gap, from um, Kununurra and the Northern Territory did really well price-wise and the fact that it was good to see some Kanava mangoes out there that people could eat at Christmas and yeah, pricing-wise pricing was, was really good before Christmas. Um, Post-Christmas as the volumes have come through, it's, it's come back a bit but still, you know, I think compared to past seasons, I think it's pretty strong compared to sort of the same time in previous years. Um, so I think a lot of the volume Early volume got chewed up by Christmas, so we weren't fitting on stuff post-Christmas, where it sort of slows down a little bit. On R2 mangoes, we've been anywhere from two, as high as five, sort of a piece, I suppose, if we put it that way, depending on size and quality and things like that. Adrian says the quality of the produce has been great as well. Eating quality, uh, there's been a bit of a smaller size profile this year on fruit, but eating quality, it's been brilliant. So, yeah, they're all eating really well. There's some you know, some of the tree-ripe stuff down here, you know, you can smell it from a mile away. It tastes amazing. So, you know, I mean, it's not hard to get a really nice-tasting mango, but, you know, in Carnarvon, they do grow some of the some of the sweetest ones um, that I reckon you can get. Mercer Mooney Produce Distributor, Adrian Farsich, ending that report by Xander Sapsworth-Collis. It is half past 12 here on The Country Hour. Jonathan Beale in the studio with the headlines. Thanks, Belinda. A WA police report has identified Aboriginal people and fly-in, fly-out workers at being at high risk of alcohol-related harm. The submission to the Director of Liquor Licensing calls for Laney Chopping to use her powers to implement further alcohol restrictions in regional WA. The report suggests implementing restrictions for at-risk groups, but a spokesperson for the director last week said Ms Chopping is not considering the proposal. New figures show WA experienced the biggest drop in the number of GP clinics offering bulk billing services in 2023. Data from the 2024 Clean Bill Report indicates only one in 10 GPs provide bulk billing in WA compared to around one in four nationwide. The drop in WA of nearly 17% is the biggest decrease in any state or territory. And Hamas and eyewitnesses in Gaza say numerous people have died in an Israeli airstrike on a building in the Jabalia refugee camp. Reporters on the scene in Jabalia say dozens of people were killed. Morning is Belinda at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you so much for going through those details. I appreciate that. Still to come, we are off to Mushe for the results of the cattle market, the first of the season. And, well, it's... You know, it's kind of a run-of-the-mill, I guess. 1,190 head of cattle yarded at Muche today. So that's up, well, a couple of hundred head on the previous sale from last year. I can't remember what, when that was, sometime in December anyway. So Terry Birkin's going to be along. He's going to go through the details for you. Also, we are going to shortly take a closer look at this major mineral sands mine in the Kimberley which has exported its first shipment. So 
Something really to celebrate there, but at the exact same time, it is dealing with this on-site cultural heritage concern. So shortly we'll get the details of that for you. And also just taking a look at what's ahead for uh, the dairy industry and then taking a look at the forecast for the wool industry. I remember I was talking to Danny Burkett. It was late last year, mid-December when the final sale of the year was on. It was a pretty good end to the season and the prices were great. So hopefully that sort of high that it ended on last year is going to continue into the new year. So we'll get the details on the outlook for the wool forecast shortly. Right now it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Joey Rawson is on deck this afternoon. Hi, Joey. Joey, can you hear me? Uh, Joey's not there. We will try for Joey. Are you there, Joey? Can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Is that Joey Rawson? Yes, it is. Well, that's a a technological breakthrough, Joey. It's Belinda here. Good to have you on the show. (laughs) Uh, Nice to be speaking to you. Oh, it's very nice. It's a miracle sometimes how these things work, but I'm glad you are there. Now, let's take a look at the weather. Let's take a look firstly at the Southwest Land Division. How's it looking this afternoon? Yeah, so uh, we've got this trough that's just moved inland from the west coast, so uh, quite hot through you know, the central wheat belt, great southern, um, and that trough is just going to continually move out to the east just slowly over the next uh, few days. Uh, we're not expecting any sunstorm development on that trough uh, today, but tomorrow um, there is a slight chance uh, through the southern goldfields and southeast coastal district and and eastern parts of the southwest land division, but we're not expecting much rain out of that, Belinda. Um, once we get to Wednesday, it's a similar story. The trough kind of stagnates uh, around the goldfields area, so there's chance of thunderstorms, but they're quite high base. It's still really hot, so um, maybe one or two millimetres if that rain can fall to the ground. And that story continues for Thursday and Friday. Um, In fact, through Thursday and Friday, it could be quite a broad area of thunderstorms over the southwest land division, Um, not the west coast, just inland from the west coast. But again, um, not a lot of rain expected on those days, Thursday and Friday. There could be uh, 1 to 10 on Thursday if things do line up with thunderstorms. Um, But as we move on to Friday, we see another mid-level trough move over and there could be some more rain. So um, there's a potential on Friday for 10 to 30 millimetres throughout most of the southwest land division, uh, not widespread with thunderstorms, apart from the west coast and the far southwest. So um, there's a little bit of uh, hope if you're wanting a bit of rain uh, by the end of the week, Belinda. All right, let's move into northern and eastern parts. What's the story this afternoon and for the rest of the week, Joey? Uh, yeah, for this afternoon, it, it's pretty much uh, what we've seen for you know many days uh, for, for the summer, just thunderstorms and showers through the interior and Kimberley. There's not a lot around at the moment, just a couple of storms developing over the eastern parts of the north interior as we speak. Uh, but we're expecting more storms to develop, especially through the northern half of uh, the Kimberley. But then as we progress on to tomorrow, uh, um, the storms over the Kimberley are going to remain there, 
basically through to the end of the week, um, but we are going to get those thunderstorms that are not going to produce much rain uh, push into the Pilbara and Northern Gascoyne on Tuesday, then further south into the goldfields on Wednesday, and then uh, yeah, all the way down to the south coast, leaking, linking up with that activity uh, that I spoke about with the Southwest Land Division uh, for Thursday and Friday. But the major thing that is occurring is we do have a bit of tropical activity developing over the north. Um, there is just a small risk that um, by the weekend or maybe even Friday that we could potentially see a tropical cyclone. And as far as risk goes, it's about a, a 5 to 10% chance um, by Thursday or Friday. And then if that doesn't develop, there is more of a risk that that tropical low moves over the northern Kimberley um, by the time we get to around Friday. Um, so places like uh, Wyndham and Kununurra and Columbaroo could start seeing some enhanced rainfall. So if you are in those areas, keep an eye out on the forecast. And we do have a seven-day tropical cyclone forecast, which you can see the activity. But at this stage, Belinda, there's a bit of uncertainty with that. But um, there is something in the pipeline. Just to uh, recap that, Joe. thank you for bringing that to our attention. It's the first time I've heard it today, so thank you. Um, if it was to form, when, when are we looking at, sort of when will we know for certain? Yeah, so um, we could. It's unlikely to get a tropical cyclone, but um, so we're looking at like a 5 to 10% chance of the system developing into a tropical cyclone. But if we don't, um, by sort of Thursday, Friday, um, we're looking at this tropical low or monsoon trough develop in the JB Gulf. And therefore, by sort of Friday into the weekend, uh, we could see those enhanced rainfall figures um, as the tropical low moves over the Kimberley. But if it remains offshore, the chances of it intensifying um, increase. But at this stage, it looks like it's going to drift across the northern parts of the Kimberley. Thank you for that recap, Joey. Appreciate that. What about the warnings this afternoon? Uh, we do have lots of strong wind warnings along the coast. So uh, we've got the, the whole Pilbara coast with strong wind warnings, the Geraldton coast, the Lancelin coast, the Perth coast, the Bunbury coast, the Lewin coast, as well as the Esperance coast. And we do have a fire weather warning out of the moment for the Burrup. Uh, in the Pilbara and the Yarra Yarra, the Swan Inland North, the Swan Inland South, the Brockman, the Blackwood, the Mortlock, the Stirling North and the Stirling West fire weather districts. So bit of heat out there. Yeah, well, there's a bit going on and I'm very glad we were able to uh, get you on the phone this afternoon. Thank you for that, Joey. No worries. It is a 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And to go through the rainfall figures, here's Michelle Stanley. Yes, yeah, so the rainfall for the 72 hours to 9 this morning, mainly in the north. Um, the only rainfall of note fell in the Kimberley. So looking at totals over 5 millimetres, Bedford Downs airstrip had 51, Billaluna 8, Devisa, Devisa. If someone could let me know, that'd be good. That They got 12. Diggers Rest had 10, Drysdale River Station 48, Ellenbrae 11, Flora Valley and Kachana had 7,
Columbaroo, 34, Kingston Rest, 12, Kununurra Arrow had 13 and the Checkpoint had 11, Lake Argyle Resort, 29, Lansdowne, 7, Mount Amherst, 17, Mount Barnett, 16, Mount House Airstrip, 15 and Mount Winifred, 30. Nicholson had 12, Old Mornington Homestead, 33, Theda, 26, Truscott, 28 and Winjana Gorge had eight but it sounds like there's a lot coming if there is a potential tropical low I think there'll be some people very excited for the first of the monsoons Uh, in the south nothing over two mils most of that sort of one and two mils in the southern coastal region ABC radio fire ban information So due to the risk of a fire, a total fire ban has been issued for today, Monday the 8th of January, for quite a few local government areas. In the Pilbara, that's Karratha. In the Midwest Gascoigne region, the shires of Carnamar, Karoo, Dandarigan, Mora, Perendry and Victoria Plains. In the Perth Outer Metro region, Armidale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jaradale and Swan. In the Goldfields Midlands region, uh, Dalwalanu, Dowry, in Gamaling, Corda, Northam, 2J and Wongan Balladew and in the southwest region, Boyup Brook, Bridgetown, Greenbushes, Collie, Dardanup, Donnybrook, Bailing Up, Harvey, Murray and Waruna and in the Great Southern region, Boddington, Broomhill, Tambalup, Cranbrook, Noangra, Katanning, Cojanup, Plantagenet, Wagen and West Arthur. So during a total fire ban, you must not light fires for cooking or camping carry out hot work such as grinding and welding or go off-road driving using a four-wheel drive or quad bike. In addition to those total fire bans, a few shires have issued harvest and vehicle movement bans today. That's the shires of Armidale, Karoo, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Narigin, Swan and Yalgu. So if you'd like more detailed information, including the zones, any other restrictions and also the lifting of harvest bans, please contact your local government. And remember, it is your responsibility to check with your local government. And just repeating, there are total fire bans in place for multiple multiple shires, most of the state really, um, but that includes the Pilbara, the Midwest, Gascoigne, Perth Metro, Goldfields, Midlands, Southwest and Great Southern for today. That's Monday the 8th of Jan. And there's more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban and a map of the areas on Emergency WA, that website, emergency.wa.gov.au. Thanks, Belinda. Thanks so much for going through those details, Michelle. 17 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. A major mineral sands mine in the Kimberley has exported its first shipment but it's right at the same time as it's dealing with an on-site cultural heritage concern. Sheffield Resources' Thunderbird Mine exported 300 metric tonnes of non-magnetic zircon concentrate to China over the weekend from the port of Port Hedland. That shipment comes as the WA government has partially suspended clearing operations at the Thunderbird Mine after an Indigenous direction stone was found on the site. The mine received clearing permits in 2022, but when the stone was discovered late last year, clearing activities within a 25-metre radius of the stone were suspended. Nigana woman Rosita Shaw says it's crucial the stone stays in place. Yeah, so the significance of finding a direction sounds, it was put there for a reason. You can't salvage it. You can't remove it. You can't remove something that was, that, that was put there from our ancestors. 
So the direction zones that are there, they are direct direction. So when, when our old people used to move seasonal, then they used to put direction stones. So it leads them to a, um, a campsite, it leads them to a waterhole. So that's why it's, it, it, it's there for a reason. And I've been there when I, was a, when I was a little girl. My mom took me there and showed me and said, these things are to mark them places where we, where we move seasonals. And you're saying directional direction stones, not stone. Do you think that there's more than one? So there's more than one, yeah, because there's other, others, other direction stones on the other side of the road there. On the, on, on the, um, so you got Jumbanburu. Jumbanburu is, is like a wetland country, you know. Then when you go across the road, other side on Biranburu country, Biran, Biran is um, not wetland, it's just bush area, you know, with Bilibili, we call them Bilibili, is, is um, rocks, you know. Mm. And when it comes yeah. to, so you have a, Jumbanburu Aboriginal Corporation has a coexistence agreement in place with mm. Kimberley Mineral Sands, does that cover something like this This case of finding a direction stone? Yeah, well, it should in the, in the coexisting agreement. It's part of the, part of the um, HPA, Heritage Protection Agreement. It's also part of the, the, the survey, the, the actual document that we document when we have an anthropologist out there. So it's, got, it's all documented. Does that say that the direction stones can be moved in that coexistence agreement? No, it can't be moved. Have you been talking with the Kimberley Mineral Sands about this? Have you, do you feel like there's been good communication between yourself as a traditional owner and them as a mining company? No, there's no, no, no communication with them. The only, the only communication we got with them is when they come to our board meeting and just put up tenders for contract and just talk about other things, which we don't even get no contracts. What would you like to see from here when it comes to dealing with Kimberley Mineral Sands, especially around the direction stone that has been found? Well, from now we want to see, we don't want to do any more, no more surveys, no more heritage surveys, no more clearances. So we want them to come back and we need to revisit that area again. And we also need to revisit the whole area, whether it was cleared or not cleared. We still need to revisit it as soon as possible. So we, you know... So what kind of buffer would you like? If if they've got a current 25-metre well, radius, would you like to see more? You'd see more more than that. Depends on when we go out there and we, we, we have to go out there and have a look and we've got to decide how much buffer we want around it because there could be other, other, other artefacts around that 25-metre buffer. Is that likely? Is a place that has a direction stone present likely to have other artefacts as well? Yes, there'll be scatters around there. Scatters, when I say scatters, that's quartz. Like when they used to be sharpening their rocks or it could be um, grinding stones, all them sort of thing. Nick and a woman, Rosetta Shaw, speaking with Alice Marshall about a direction stone found at the Thunderbird Mineral Sands Mine near Broome. That mine is owned by Sheffield Resources, which operates as Kimberley Mineral Sands. Manager of Community and Public Relations, Chris Cottier, says the company hopes to work with the traditional owners to find a way forward. The Minister for Aboriginal Affairs partially suspended our Section 18 approval on the 23rd of December uh, over an area of about 25 metres squared uh, for a potential heritage object that has been identified at the Thunderbird site. So so it occurred uh, very late last year. 
um, the the site itself had been identified by Kimberley Mineral Sands, and um, in line with the the regulation or the act, um, the the company had reported that to the to the minister um, to ensure that um, he was aware that uh, we had some um, new sites uh, discovered on the site, and we put the appropriate level of protection. So so so. In addition to the 25 meter radius that the, the minister has put around the, the heritage site, um, we've constructed a, a one and a half meter wind road um, and tape to ensure that it's not physically impacted, but also demarcated the site um, on the uh, mapping systems that the company uses as well. Where to from here? Well, so so, so the first part of that question is um, the, the, the site just continues in terms of the operations, we continue as normal. Um, and obviously we will avoid um, doing any works around that site. That's very important for us. Um, the, the minister's expectation and, and direction is that uh, Kimberley Mineral Sands needs to work with the Joombaumbaru uh, traditional owners to find a solution to the heritage site. What the, what the minister has asked for is um, for both parties to provide a submission um, in terms of him making a more, a more permanent decision around, around the site. But obviously, uh, what what our intent is that we would we'd really really want to sit down with the traditional owners to to find a way forward to um, how we address that site. And Chris, am I right to say that you're an Indigenous person yourself? Are we seeing here outdated cultural heritage laws at play? Is this where we need a reboot of the cultural heritage laws, or what do you make of the whole scenario? No, I think that I think the laws are appropriate. Um, you know, it's quite clear for us that. Uh, a new a new site had been identified. We've engaged in the process. Um, the ministers made a decision, and, and we just need to work through the the process to, to to work with the traditional owners, work with the department, so that we can get some clarity around how we can address the site in the future. So, so we're you know we're comfortable with the the legislation and the process that has been put in place by the minister and the department. What's going on here is this covered by the coexistence agreement that you have as Kimberley Mineral Sands. With the Jumban Buru Aboriginal Corporation, yeah. So a coexistence agreement does exist between uh, Kimberley Mineral Sands and the Jumban Buru uh, traditional owners. It's a, it, it might, from my point of view, it's a very good coexistence agreement. Uh, has some very strong Aboriginal employment, Aboriginal procurement targets. Um, but as to to your point, um, there is a process that's in that agreement that. The details how we should address heritage issues on the site. Um, Kimberley Mineral Sands has been working through that process with the Jumbaumbaru to, to, as an example, to get some monitors, heritage monitors, to attend sites so that they can um, supervise the land clearing operations. Look, in, in this instance, it hasn't gone as smoothly as, as we would have liked it to go, but um, you know, we remain optimistic that we can continue to work with the traditional owners to find a way forward. Chris Cottier is the Manager of Community and Public Relations for Kimberley Mineral Sands and he was speaking to Alice Marshall. A spokesperson from the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage says in line with recent amendments to the Aboriginal Heritage Act 1972, Kimberley Mineral Sands reported new information, a direction stone, relating to an existing Section 18 consent for its Thunderbird project. A partial suspension has been applied to the area 
within a 25-metre radius of the identified direction stone, as Chris was just telling you. And Kimberley Mineral Sands took action to isolate the area where the stone is located, ceased clearing works in the immediate vicinity and will meet with the Jimban Buruburu Aboriginal Corporation to determine an agreed outcome. This is the Country Hour, eight minutes to one, and shortly Terry Birkin along with the first of the Muche cattle markets for 2024. That's just before the news at one. First, though, wool sales are back in Melbourne, Sydney and Fremantle this week with almost 54,000 bales on offer. And wool producers will be hoping for some strong prices from 2024. Jenny Breddon from Wool Brokers Fox and Lily Rural says the markets rallied at the end of 2023, and if that continues, it could be a good year for growers. Uh, the EMI closed at 12.12, and, and we had a, a fair rally in those last couple of weeks before Christmas, which was great, on an offering of 49,000 bales. But, you know, the EMI at the close of 22 was 13.27, 115 cents higher. So we saw some substantial price falls across most wool types over over 23. They weren't generally anticipated by the market and caught many industry players by surprise. I think we're very positive for looking at the year ahead. Still a lot of uncertainties, but we're expecting the next couple of weeks to be quite bright. There was some reasonably strong demand for wool over the break. So, yeah, we think this next few weeks should give a bit of cause for positivity. Let's take a look at the markets. Let's, uh, we'll start with domestic markets. What's, uh, what can we expect um, this year domestically? We do expect that we will have a supply similar to last year. There was a 6% increase in supply and production for 23, which was enabled by general good seasonal conditions through 2022. So we, we, we're thinking that that will that that will continue, even though sheep slaughter was up 38% and lamb slaughter was up 8%, you know, that, that, that production is still increasing. Noting from talking to farmers just in the last week or so, shearing is back in full swing um, and also talking to local contractors, most of them are saying that they are in front of their work uh, and many are looking to take on more. So, yeah, wool has begun to flow in, flow into store in earnest post-Christmas break. Uh, what about international markets? Who, who might be making moves in some of those global markets? So, knitwear is very strong at the moment or has been really for the... That's been the trend for quite some time now, but it is coming more to a focus. And, and you do see that in the finer, um, the finer end of the spectrum other than, you know, those really premium, super-fine types going into the weaving sector, there's not a lot of difference in price, and, and that's really quite representative of, a, of the knitwear being quite inclusive in, in what it can take. We saw crossbred wool prices come off their lows in the last few months, which has given people a few sighs of relief. Um, I think, you know, you, you can't ignore the trend that we're seeing worldwide the take-up of natural fibres and, and really wanting to move away from plastics. It's been great to see the evolution of a company called Planet Protector in Australia who's received a, a pretty large grant and has a facility now for making a woolen packaging out of uh, non-woven crossbred, yeah, crossbred product. And we also noticed on a, a European company startup, Wooler, 
making some pretty big investments and doing something similar. They noted that 200,000 tonnes of wool in Europe goes unused, so it's burnt Mm. or buried. So there's a big growth in that area that we can see. We probably need to see some fashion items, though, if we want to see crossbred prices come back to where most people would like them. And in terms of who's buying and and who's selling, uh, do we expect any change in that in the international markets this year? Any change in competition or um, new new buyers? Uh, Look, China took 85% of Australia's wool export. I mean, they are largely, you know, pretty difficult to, um, to beat that. Although we put much hope into India, they really do have the capacity to become something akin to China and, and we've seen a lot of government investment into promoting their textiles industry. There's a uh, you know, really big textiles conference that's been held there where you know, the government was actually paying for overseas people to come and stay for a couple of nights. So you know, that's pretty significant. Fox and Lily Rural Regional Wool Manager Jenny Bredden with Fiona Broom. And those wool sales back on this week in Melbourne, Sydney and Fremantle. Of course, we'll catch up with Danny Burkett on Friday just to go through the results from this week's sales. Two minutes to one. G'day, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for the world today. Eastern Australia's summer of rain now has communities in Victoria braced for more flooding as a wet weather system smashes part of the state. Why Tasmania's Medicare bulk billing rates are the nation's worst? We take a look at the factors pushing up the cost of seeing a doctor. And should foreign nationals help swell the ranks of Australia's defence forces? Will it boost our military or create divided loyalties? 1,190 head of cattle were yarded at the Michet's sale yards today. That's up more than 200 head from the last sale last year. Terry Birkin, can you run through the details? Hi, Belinda. Numbers were reasonable for the first trade sale of the year with a mixed quality yarding. Finished trade steers and heifers were in limited supply against the volume of secondary stock and young lightweight cows regardless of sex were keenly sought by live exporters. Market improved today with young steers gaining 5 to 10 cents, while heifers showing good cover jumped around 20 cents a kilo. The cow market also saw improved rates by 10 to 15 cents and heavy bulls up to 10 cents a kilo. Local villa steers ranged from 160 to 276 cents, while local villa heifers sold from 166 to 256 cents a kilo. Yearly steers up to 330kg averaged 258 cents, while over 330kg returned 166 to 270 cents a kilo. Yearly heifers up to 330kg sold from 152 to 224 and over 330kg realised 242 cents a kilo. Pastoral heifers ranged from 20 cents to 170 cents, quality dependent. Grown steers sold from 148 cents up to 220 cents, while grown heifers made from 142 up to 198 cents a kilo. Cows gained today with lightweight cows were making 70 cents to 130 cents, while medium cows selling up to 166 cents, and heavy cows sold to a top of 180 cents a kilo. Shipping bulls ranged from 120 to 270 cents, and mature heavy bulls gained 10 cents, selling up to 185 cents a kilo. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you for that. Just going through those figures in detail at sale today, 1,179 live weight, and 11 veal for a total of 1,190 head and numbers up 212 from the last sale last year. Good to talk to you today. Time for the news, one o'clock.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.